Well, let's go ahead and get started. Oh, hello. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for, again for this, for this your day, uh, that you have called us into your presence, that you've given us much grace, and, and even in that. Uh, Lord, give us understanding and greater wisdom and how it is that you're leading us as your people through the ages, through time, but especially in the time and place where you have placed us. Use this time to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as always, I'm going to start with a bit of a recap of last week, just to kind of set where we were. So last week, we dealt essentially with Reformation hymnody uh, from um, what went on in the Reformation and how that then flowed out of, of uh, the work of Schutz and of Bach into applying that specifically within the context of worship. So we also talked about the ideas that began to infiltrate in the 16th century in various writings, uh, the rise of individual creativity, uh, the rise of emotion in music, that those were things to be prized and things to, to attain. Um, as part of that as well, we talked about the biblical idea of craftsmanship, that um, originality actually replaces things in the past, while craftsmanship actually deepens those things. And, and so there's a much, much greater weight, I think, in the artisan sense, uh, in the way that, that term was utilized before, you know, in past generations, of doing things well, of taking the materials there. Originality replaces what's been done and therefore sweeps it away, um, which is, I would argue, not a biblical um, methodology or ideology with regards to, to art. You want to build upon what's been done and to extend that to push even further into the various fields of, an, of artistic endeavor. <clears throat> then we talked a bit about Calvin and his view of, of psalmody and uh, the Genevan Psalter and his, uh, his value on music. Zwingli and his lack of value on music and his banning of music in Zurich for 75 years um, within, the, within the context of the congregation. Puritanism in, uh, in England, which um, started out as wanting things more simple and more austere, uh, which led to the idea that music is just frivolous. And uh, it can distract us and engage us away from the word, and so therefore we need to be very cautious and, and not use it much and certainly not enjoy it. Um, because this is going along, even kind of echoing some of Augustine, that you know, enjoying it takes us away from its intent. Uh, and then we have Luther, you know, who said that all of creation is imbued with music, uh, and it's inherent in what God has made, echoing back to the things that we talked about in the early weeks with regards to the musical universe and the musical cosmos and how that interplays there. And that preachers know, should know how to sing. It's part of their training. Congregations need to know how to read music so that they can participate in worship. Uh, as they need to know how to read so they can read scripture, they need to know how to sing so that they can worship. As, as the body of Christ. And because of that, he wrote, began to write German chorales, uh, he and encouraging other composers as well, which were congregational song. Uh, we also talked about the fact that a bar song is a structure and form of a song, not a saloon song. There's a difference there. So when you say, you know, when you hear that Luther used, you know, bar tunes, yes, that's an AAB structure. That's a, the, the, the idea there. And we also talked about the music of Bach um, and that he took those ideas of Luther as translated through Heinrich Schutz and then applied those specifically to the glory and worship of God 
within the context of writing chorales, writing cantatas, uh, and writing music for the various worship uh, services throughout the course of, um, of the year in Leipzig, particularly. Um, and some of the difficulties that that entails, just in terms of, of the output that he had in, in cantatas, but how we don't really have a way to engage with those. Um, that they're too religious for, uh, and too congregational and for concerts, but they're kind of long and uh, hard to um, insert in, in our, our usual services. I did get an email this week from one of you challenging me on, hey, could we possibly do something like one day? I said, well, maybe, something along those lines. That's part of why we're doing this, to kind of give some, uh, some foundation understanding of what has gone on before. But that's essentially what we do with regards to things like Good Friday or, or Christmas, um, and that we're reading scripture and interacting with text in that, in that type of way. So today I want to talk about, you know, little things like, you know, humanism and the Enlightenment, uh, romanticism and revivalism. So <clears throat> we'll just kind of plow on through. Um, these are important ideas to understand how they shaped music and how they shaped the church and the implications that that then had on not only on music but on theology and on the expectation of what uh, church is and what its purpose is. So with, with humanism, and I'm making a differentiation between secular humanism and, and humanism uh, with regards to the, the actually that showed up in issues of pietism, uh, emphasis on human guilt and conversion, and it prized religious feeling over intellectual understanding. So the idea was that the, the understanding of self, which has an important concept within um, Christianity, but it held in that tension of the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God, as well as his eminence, and then the place and the role of, of the self in that. This became more the emphasis on the self in terms of, of what do I feel and how to manipulate that kind of feeling, and how can we convert um, via means of guilt or uh, via means of, of conviction in that regard. So the hymns then of this, of this period um, the 18th century are largely expressions of personal religious feelings and experiences. And so we collectively sing of personal things uh, as opposed to collectively sing of objective realities of who God is. Um, Quentin Faulkner in his book, Wiser Than Despair, said, the primary effect that humanism has had both on Christian theology and on faith and practice is a shift of focus from God's transcendence to God's imminence, from God's holiness and unapproachability to God's intimate nearness, kindliness, and friendliness. Since the 18th century, Christians have grown more and more interested in what God in Christ has done for each individual human at the expense of emphasizing what the individual is compelled for the sake of God's great love to do for God in Christ. So we, we changed that sense of emphasis. Um, one aspect of that, um, and this is even more so with the Enlightenment, we don't understand our connectedness as well as the body of Christ. We tend to think of things like, um, you know, I'm a sinner, yes, but my sin only affects me. Without realizing that even your private sins affect the entirety of the body that we are joined together in Christ. 
and, and, that, and, and that from a theological and covenantal standpoint, we lose something when we lose that sense of that connectedness uh, and we concentrate solely on the personal aspect of experience. With the Enlightenment, <clears throat> there were sweeping changes to how humans viewed their relationship to the universe. Um, and this goes back to some of the things we talked about in the earlier weeks. Quentin Faulkner again says, the Enlightenment was at heart a denial of the mystical, spiritual dimension of existence. Leading thinkers were disposed to consider religion, especially Christian religion, as superstition, and in criticizing, indeed, ridiculing it, they hastened the evaporation not only of superstition, but also of spirituality. So this became more of a self-centeredness as opposed to the metaphysical, God-centered understanding of the universe. So what we have here, too, is, is the, the idea of humanism and pietism was working within the church. The ideas of the Enlightenment were working from the outside against the church. Uh, consequently, the church was fighting um, outside attacks uh, while also dealing with inside changes um, such that music kind of fell by the wayside. And it's during this period, too, as they begin to separate from more that universal cosmic element of understanding, um, that there's also the shift from the church being the leader in culture and the leader in the arts to become a follower of what's going on in the secular culture. So up to this point in time, you know, secular culture was kind of an overflow of what the church was doing. And that begins to shift during this period. And so the church is then following and catching up on what's going on within the context of the world. And one of the, and one of the significant things about this, too, this is also the rise of, um, of um, concert music, you know, what we think in terms of classical music, music specifically written for the secular stage, which has a different aesthetic and a different purpose than music that is written for the context of worship. And so even some of those aesthetic choices or understanding of the purpose of music uh, that it's appropriate within other settings began then to become into the church. And so that performance element began to shift from um, the concert stage into the context of worship. And this had far-reaching effects with regards to if you're separating yourself from the metaphysical, from the fact that there's this idea of something beyond, uh, that there's a connectedness to a creator, that things inherently have meaning because they, they are interconnected in Christ, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, that things have a, a, an order to them, cosmos means order, then suddenly things like covenant don't make sense, or things like sacraments. Because if things are pointing to something else and there's nothing else to point to, then what you're left with is empty ritual. And in fact, things like pageantry, ceremony, ritual, began to be despised or kind of embarrassed because they didn't have the heart of, being, of pointing towards something other. You know, if, if you're not engaging in a wedding as part of a, a covenant before God um, and, and you don't recognize the power of words, that you know, you, you're not married until the minister says, I now pronounce you man and wife. That there's, there's a declarative aspect that creates a reality. 
if you don't believe in that, if you don't believe in the metaphysical aspect of that or the otherness of that, then things like a wedding become, you can do that anywhere with anybody uh, officiating in any way you want because it doesn't matter. It's more about you. It's more about you know your vows or your your experience or your destination wedding or whatever. You know it becomes a different context because you don't have the meaning or the weight or the significance uh, that comes from when you're pointing to something other. That's that's far-reaching. Um, you know, there's a loss to explain the significance of ceremony in human life because of that. Um, you know, sacraments are the breaking into the spirit world to the material world. Um, there's an awe and a transcendence and a mystery there. But if you don't believe in transcendence or mystery, then there's not much there. Uh, there's also, a part of this as well, there's a move to prose instead of poetry. So you think of even past ages, uh, you think of literature. Uh, you know, people don't really write epic poems, not like they used to, you know. Um, the idea of expressing themselves in poetry is far different than expressing yourself in an email. Um, you know, the idea of, of writing, you know, people get excited about, you know, a new novel, but people don't generally get excited about a new collection of poems. You know, we've moved more practical, more prosaic, as opposed to more po uh, what used to be more poetical. Um, this begins also to, to minimize the idea of architecture, of liturgy, of art, of music. You know, when you have the ideas in the Gothic cathedrals that you're trying to convey light, but you're trying to convey light in the context of, of um, like what Rembrandt would do in, in art, the Chiricusa, the, the contrast between light and darkness. Uh, light gains meaning because of the darkness. It's not, you know, you don't walk into a cathedral and it's a well-lit space. It has beams of light coming in and the contrast of the light and dark, as opposed to walking into a mall, which is all artificially lit. It's a very lit space, but the experience is far different. Um, you, you could make the argument that a mall is our kind of common cathedral. I mean, it has that, that architecture, right? It has the large spaces, um, but it doesn't have the same feel. It's not on the human scale that uh, the, the, the um, cathedral would have. And that's a whole other discussion, but that's a really interesting one, too. Um, because that, that, had that, that still had that context, then, of the, the microcosm, the human body, the soul, is reflective of the macrocosm, the things that God has made. Okay, I have to go here for just a minute. Which is why things like, um, like that the proportions of a human body match the proportions of a cathedral. It's actually laid out on a human scale, incarnationally, which is also why uh, cathedrals are often in the form of cross as well. So there's this very direct connection then between the human and the transcendence of the space. God who is imminent, uh, but God is also who is transcendent. Um, one of the other things too, even in architectural detail, you'll notice that there are, are things like waist high and uh, eye level that root you so that you're not smothered by all of this stone and all of this weight. Um, but it's actually, uh, you're, you're, you're held up with the dignity of being made in the image of God, while at the same time experiencing this openness and this transcendence. Um, then you, symbols, you know, the things mean things. You, know, you have stained glass windows because, you know, Ezekiel says that, that the throne of God is surrounded by a rainbow. 
that when God sees us through the rainbow, he remembers his covenant to us, and he sees us through the colors of the rainbow. So therefore, a cathedral is bathed in the light of the rainbow. You have all the colors there represented. So these things have meaning and significance. We're intended to have significance because they point towards something else. They remind us of who we are. They remind us of who God is. Um, but when it becomes more about my emotions and how I feel about things, that shifts dramatically our perspective. So music and the Enlightenment, you know, it, it embodied and expresses and excites human emotion, feelings, and passion. Um, part of this began the shift to instrumental ensembles. Because instruments are, can be much more emotionally exciting than the human voice. Like, you know, imagine a, an orchestra of 50 or 60 versus a choir of 50 or 60. You've got a lot more, you know, nimbleness. You can play faster. You can play louder. You can, you know, you can fill up a space. So there's an emotional quality that instruments give that the human voice can't. And you see that in the demarcation of, of, of composers. You know, as I said before, there's a lot more composition, far more compositions for instrumental ensembles within the context of classical music than for choir. And also, kind of, you know, choirs smell a bit more of church, right? And so, if we're if we're looking at um, you know a, a secular um, concert going experience, it's much more exciting to have these instruments playing. Now, you can do a lot more with you know a loud drum set and guitars and um, you know timpanis or whatever in, in terms of instruments to engage an emotional response than you can just by a choral ensemble. And so it, there was that shift that happened as well, which is an interesting, interesting sideline there. Uh, music was, was written to provide entertainment and diversion. Uh, the best kind of music is characterized by constant variety, would have been a thought there as well. So you know, constantly new, something different all the time. Individuality and originality are virtues in musical composition and performance. So that's also begins the rise of the... Um, the composers or the, the players who are recognized in their own right as, um, as, um, as artists or as superstars. The gauge of music's excellence is popular acclaim. The public is the best judge of good music, another aspect of this period. And the best kind of music is natural and unlearned, anti-intellectual attitude toward music. So no longer was this, this idea that um, that you, you may have musical proclivity, but then you studied and you learned and you submitted yourself to the discipline of learning music. Um, it was more along the lines of, you know, play by ear, play for fun, et cetera. Um, there was that, there, and if you remember our earlier discussion, you know, the, the, the weight was given not on the performance of music in the past generations, but on the thoughts, the philosophies of music and the performance of music was considered something else. Now that has shifted. So the performance of music, whether somebody has the, um, the philosophical or the theological understanding is different than, or is of secondary importance than somebody being able to play well. And that may be, they may be able to do that naturally um, or through study, but it doesn't really matter as long as, yeah, as long as people like it, then it's okay. So the actual sound of music then began to be considered important. Um, the idea that a musician and a poet are born, as opposed to somebody who is, through study and submission to a discipline, uh, becomes that way. 
Um, you, you see this in various other movements. There are several artists, especially as things began to shift in the late, um, visual artists in the late 1900s, I mean, sorry, late 1800s, 19th century, that because they were unable to, um, to pass the entrance exams to get into the salon to really study art, um, they started making up their own schools of thought um, because, they, because they, they didn't qualify for or couldn't submit themselves to the discipline of learning other things. And, you know, and part of the purpose of that is, is to build upon what's been done in the past, to extend that, to deepen that, but also to understand your place um, and what you're doing. There's a, there's a humility and a submission to that. And then we have the aspects then, uh, the natural flow of this is romanticism. Uh, noble creations by noble humans for noble humans. So music becomes almost this quasi-religious experience. Uh, people talk about Beethoven in almost hushed, holy tones, um, in, in, even in the time in which he was, he was writing. Um, it's a great quote. Um, it says that um, Beethoven, um, I'm all for quotes, but it's not along the lines of, Beethoven lets you know what it means to be Beethoven. Mozart lets you know what it means to be human. And Bach lets you know what it means to be the cosmos. So it becomes very much, you know, the composer becomes very much about themselves um, and, and all the things that that entails, the lifestyle, the relationships, the, the context in which they lived. And <clears throat> so part of this, uh, the effect on the church of this romanticism was two ways. The positive aspect of it is that it began this interest in, in um, history. And so there was a resurgence of liturgical movement. So things like the Oxford movement in England, um, there was a desire to go back to aspects of liturgy. Lutherans, Anglicans, the Roman Catholics, et cetera, um, began to restore and to revitalize aspects of music and, um, and with regards to liturgy. That's also when we start seeing in the, uh, in the 19th century all these great hymn translators. So people like John Brownlee, who is translating um, the, um, the hymns of the Latins and the Greeks, or Catherine Winkworth, who brought the German chorale tradition by translating the German chorales into English. I mean, that's, that's just an eight, that just happened in the 1800s, um, that those hymns began to be more recognized in English-speaking countries before then they were inaccessible because of the language barrier. But part of that is, is, is a connection to what other, what's going on in other places and things in the past. Uh, John Mason Neal, as well, translating the early Latin and Greek hymns. The newer evangel evangelical churches, such as Baptist, Methodist, etc., they emphasize emotional preaching and individual conviction of sin. And that led to the whole idea of revivalism as well. Um, you've got Charles Finney there on your, on your sheet. Um, music was, desi was designed to create religious emotionalism. And because of that, then they began to borrow the musical vocabulary of parlor music or saloon music. Uh, because those things were popular. Once again, popular, um, the public has the gauge on what's good music. Uh, so began to need music that reflected the context of revivalist tendencies, um, the, um, the need to cause, even through music, the emotional connection to conviction of sin. So aspects of this, you see that under, under Charles Finney, the music to fit the needs, catchy tunes with refrains. Uh, so you think of a lot of the revivalist hymns, um, 
predictable harmonies and melodies, camp meeting songs. There's some aspects of, um, well, if you look down there, even um, further down the page, the gospel hymns, these, these apply to both. They employ triplets and dotted rhythms, predictable melodies and harmonies, major keys, very mild chromaticism, uh, no dissonance or musical argument uh, to create tension. I jokingly refer to these sometimes as the songs that Presbyterians would sing in Sunday night worship. Um, <laughs> but, you know, things like, um, you know, Wonderful the Matchless Grace of Jesus, do 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 that bouncy kind of, you know, dotted rhythm um, would be reflective. And, well, of course, that's a chorus as well. So there's a, there's a um, verse-chorus aspect. We'll talk about a little bit more about that in a minute. But then there was a reaction to that. So you have Thomas Hastings, who wanted to combat the emotionalism of the Finney Revival hymns. Uh, he taught himself music so that he could do that. He felt so strongly about that. He wrote a thousand hymn tunes. And he wrote a uh, work called the Dissertation, the Dissertation on Musical Taste. Now, remember, he's working to, uh, to provide an alternative to the emotionalism that he sees in the Finney hymns. But this is what he writes in his dissertation on musical taste. He argued that music is a language of sentimental feeling, and the excellence of any music is directly proportional to the effect it produces in the listener. So even though he's combating that, he's still, the, the whole argument has shifted. Right? So he's, he's thinking about music. He's, he wants to basically uh, appeal to different emotions but he's still appealing to emotions. There's still that sentimentality. Um, some, of the, some of the hymns that come out of this era, Shall We Gather at the River, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Um, Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey, also um, the gospel hymns that came out of their crusades and meetings as well, was a profound influence, especially uh, in Europe. Also there you have Fanny Crosby, uh, who wrote 8,500 hymns, though blind. Um, now, there are some, not to paint the too broad of a stroke here, um, there are some wonderful hymns that come out of the tradition. Uh, what I didn't talk about as well is you have Isaac Watts on the front end of all this, um, who's, who's writing hymns based on the Psalms uh, and other, the, the Scottish uh, influence as well, the Welsh influence. Um, writing hymns that are based on psalms and based on biblical themes. But what you have is this, this rising popularity of what becomes known as a gospel hymn. And as I said, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good hymns that come out of that, uh, but it is a different focus. There's also a lot of, of not-so-good hymns that come out of that as well. I mean, there's a whole genre um, of, of my mother is praying for me hymns. Um, these probably are not as familiar. Um, I have to share some, though. Um, well, this, this is another mother hymn, but it's a Bible mother hymn. Like a compass on the sea, like a star on azure deep, is the Bible unto me. For my course it safely keeps, tells me how I strayed and fell, how in sin I lay as dead, but I live its power to tell. Blessed book my mother read. Now, I didn't read it, but my mother read it. The refrain then, precious book, O wondrous book, who can tell its power divine, bearing news of grace so free, book of books, I claim it mine. 
another good mother one. Can a boy forget his mother's prayer when he has wandered God knows where? It's down the path of death and shame, but mother's prayers are heard the same. Come back, my boy, come back, I say, and walk now in thy mother's way. Come back, my boy, come back, I say, and walk now in thy mother's way. There are multiple verses to that one. Um, Fanny Crosby wrote some wonderful hymns. This is not one of them. Um, A prayer on the wings of an angel is born to the portals of light. I feel in my heart the assurance that mother is praying tonight. My spirit is wounded and broken. My sins with contrition I see. To Jesus I'll go and confess them while mother is praying for me. My mother is praying for me. My mother is praying for me. To Jesus I'll go who will pardon I know while mother is praying for me. It's almost a fascinating um, um, Virgin Mary type of aspect of understanding this almost this intercessory aspect of, of mother here. Um, now this was one of my favorites. When I was but a little child, how well I recollect how I would grieve my mother with my folly and neglect. And now that she has gone to heaven, okay, so you know she's dead now, so this is like really a tearjerker. I miss her tender care. Oh, Savior, tell my mother I'll be there. <laughs> tell mother I'll be there. In answer to her prayer, this message, blessed Savior, to her bear. Tell mother I'll be there. Heaven's joys with her to share. Yes, tell my darling mother I'll be there. So Jesus' job is to tell your mother <laughs> that you're on your way. Um, and then you have all the, like, the train hymns. Um, are you at your station ready for the near approaching train? Are you fully contemplating that a pass you will obtain? Is there some important matter you have left behind undone that will keep you hesitating till too late to make the run? Oh, be ready for the glorious gospel train. Quickly make your preparation and your passport have in hand. Oh, be ready for the glorious gospel train. It will take you safely over to the glory spirit land. So, I don't know if these are actually, any of these are still actually sung, um, but you get the idea. I mean, these, these were written for and very popularized within the context of, of revivalism, uh, revival meetings, uh, conviction of sin. The sentimentality of that, um, I think you can hear clearly. <laughs> I mean, it's a, different, it's a different aspect, and it's very personal. It's my experience of my mother reading the Bible to me, uh, and that becomes the catalyst for conviction of sin. Not Christ, not who Christ is, not what Christ has done, um, but my mother and my mother reading the Bible. So it's a very different, it's a very different flavor of what is trying to come across in the context of those hymns. Um, and there's and there's a kind of an overwrought um, aspect of Romanticism. One one thing um, that you see too, especially in like late nineteenth century hymns, um, the uh, I think these are probably more from the parlor tradition. The overwrought chromaticism. This very overly romanticized melody for A Little Town of Bethlehem, and there's several others that are along those lines that is very much stylistic of the day. But tends to be driven more towards evoking an emotional response or a sentimental response, and then the other aspect of this as well is the rise of Unitarian hymns. 
So hymns that were written by Unitarians or translated by Unitarians. I mentioned last week that the translation of A Mighty Fortress that we sing um, was translated by a Unitarian pastor. And so it does not have the same force uh, and theological import that Luther's original has. Uh, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. is also a Unitarian hymn. Um, Ever singing, march we onward, you know, in the triumph song of life. Um, you know, there's aspects of, of theology in there, but it's also kind of watered down. Uh, not to mention the fact that that's, you know, Beethoven's, uh, you know, hymn to humanism from his Ninth Symphony. So you have those things, um, you know, paired together. You know, there are songs like, you know, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. Um, which, you know, somebody said somewhere that the only person who can really sing that hymn is... Um, Mary Magdalene, um, because that's really the only true person who's had that experience uh, and can, can speak to that. Um, you also have, at the same time, the rise of, kind of, of, of Sunday school hymns. Um, in my heart there rings a melody. Jesus wants me for sunbeam. I've never really understood that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be a sunbeam for him. Interestingly, there's a whole Sunday school curriculum called Sunbeam based around this, this, uh, this hymn that, that was created by the Mormons. So they've adopted that as a, um, as, a, as a Mormon Sunday school curriculum for children. At the same time, you also have um, what's essentially the, the shape note tradition or the southern harmony tradition. Uh, this starts during the uh, period of the Revolutionary War, moves on through the 19th century as well, uh, and there's still opportunities to go to what's known as a big sing in, with shape note singing. Um, but there were, one of the things that happened too in the early colonies was the creation of music schools, this desire to teach people how to sing. Uh, one of the interesting aspects of Southern harmony or shape note singing is that the melody is in the tenor. And if you remember from our talk about chant, that's, that's where the melody resided. Tenor means to hold. Uh, the melody was in the tenor line, the held line, the chant melody, and all the other parts went around that. That's the same foundation of Southern harmony or, or, um, or of um, shape note singing. So things like Amazing Grace or um, um, What Wondrous Love Is This come out of that tradition. That is folk in some ways, but also rooted in some of the, um, uh, the traditions that it came over around that time. So there's the Celtic influence as well, especially through this, this area of the country um, that, that infuses that, um, but intended for congregational singing and singing in parts, um, but more of a, a separate tradition from, from this other that we're talking about. Along this line too, you know, with the going back to the, uh, the desire to be reconnected to historicity. Um, in the 1860, late 1850s, published in 1860, was the first edition of hymns ancient and modern in England, uh, which was designed to be hymns for the parish church. We also have, you know, part of this, part of this rise of hymnody is the creation of hymn books as well. Um, it's kind of a new phenomenon, collecting a, a group of hymns together. So hymns for the parish churches. So it turned out that there were multiple, um, multiple pastors in parish churches who were trying to collect hymns for the congregation to sing. They realized they were all doing this, decided to band together and do this together and to have one concerted effort. 
Um, they incorporated some of the translations of Catherine Winkworth of the German chorales. Uh, they incorporated um, the translations of the early Latin and Greek hymns as well and brought these new hymns into the context of the parish churches in England. Um, it was the first edition, as I said, was published in, well, Words Only Edition was published in 1860. Uh, a version with music was published in 1861. By 1868, it had sold 4.5 million copies, which would be a bestseller for now, let alone you know, in the 1860s. Uh, it's an ecumenical mix. Um, you know, as I said, there's various translations. It also paired texts and tunes together. If you notice in, uh, in your bulletin below the, below the hymns, there's, a, there's a, a source for the text and a source for music given. Very rarely is it the same year. I mean, sometimes it may be hundreds of years apart or decades apart. Um, so there are, there are hymns, and like the, sometimes the music, usually the music comes later. So you have a hymn that you know very well to these texts and this tune, but that was not always the case. It may have been sung to a variety of tunes over time, um, and we just particularly know it within partic that particular marriage of text and tune. That's one of the things that hymns ancient and modern did. They paired particular texts together with particular tunes. So things like All Glory, Laud, and Honor, that was first paired together in hymns ancient and modern. Holy, 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 that was paired there. So you think about how, you know, that's a kind of a solid Christian hymn that most everybody knows. Um, it was only the 1860s in which that was formed together as music and text. Oh God, our help in ages past was another one that was melded together for that. And the church is one foundation. So that art of, of matching together texts and tunes uh, that would then become so identified with one another that we almost think of them as a whole um, was part of the gift that hymns ancient and modern did, bringing new text, new ideas, um, new translations, but also the, these new marriages of text and hymns. So you have, this, you have this overflowing fount of hymns for various purposes. Um, but once again, you know, the various purposes coming out of the aspects of humanism or enlightenment with particular purposes of, of trying to engage people on a sentimental or an emotional level, uh, or even, even the historicity of, of uh, this is cool because it's old, um, there's that element as well, even in the revival of, of older, older text. But you've got all these things being written. You think, we, we, as we talked before with regards to Gregorian chant, there were essentially 650 melodies that were used for a thousand years. And now you can pick up almost any hymn book and have 650 melodies per hymn book. Well, the overlap, of course. But there's, you think of the, the and, and not to mention all these uh, hymn books from the 19th century that we don't even use anymore. There's such an overwhelming number of hymns and texts. But you also don't have the same, um, um, the same criteria evaluating what's useful and what's going to be helpful uh, and what's going to be, to be um, appropriate for the context of worship that you had when those were codified with the chant. Um, you've got different purposes in mind. So that makes a difference then how those things were generated. Um, I want to sing, of course. So I chose not one of the gospel hymns, um, but on the back, verse one of Church's One Foundation, you see there the text uh, was written in 1866 
For this one, the tune, Aurelia, was written in 1864, but it was one of the later editions of the hymns, Ancient and Modern, in which this text and this tune was put together um, in what we know as, a, as the Church's One Foundation. So let's think verse one. If we have a couple minutes, we'll answer questions afterward that. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From him he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. I'll remind you that choir rehearsal starts not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. Just throwing that out there. Y'all do a great job at singing these things. Um, next week, we'll talk about uh, more 20th century, what happens then, but, but more along the lines of the effects of disconnecting from that cosmic aspect and what, what that means uh, and how we go from there. Yes, Jim. Yes, I'd be interested. Yeah, which particular ones too? But sometimes I think there's um, um, there are we we are less musically literate than previous generations, and uh, sometimes some of the hymns that were well known in past um, past eras are more difficult for congregations to sing or less well known. Um, and there are times too in which there's a wonderful text that's going to fit very well with what the sermon is going to be. And I really want us to be able to sing that, but I don't want the, the tune to be a barrier to that. So if we sing it to something that we know um, or something that is more familiar or something that we can learn quickly, then we can get to the heart of the text and hopefully those things still marry well. But yeah, that's part of the, part of the impetus for that. I also hope to leave time for questions next week. So I'm going to try to keep a short lesson and then, you know, allow for other times to, uh, to, to reflect and to interact. So um, thanks very much.